0: the Sound Prince Audio Magazine, a production of the Kentucky Council of the Blind. Sound Prince is underwritten by the American Printing House for the Blind and the Louisville Downtown Lions Club. I'm Carla Rushevel. I'm your host for this week's magazine. Welcome to Sound Prints for the week of September 5, 2021. The following events will be held on the KCB Zoom line and are open to all who wish to attend. Join from your computer, cell phone, or landline by calling 669-900-6833 and entering the code eight six two nine eight eight nine six nine seven two, or join through the Zoom link found in the event announcement on our email list. The KCB Next Generation Chapter will hold its September business meeting on Thursday, September 9 at 8 p.m. Call Ben Wright, Next Gen President, at 734 734- 968 for more information. The Greater Louisville Council of the Blind Friday Night Roundabout schedule for September is as follows, Virtual Bingo, September 10, Page Turners, where we can share good books, September 17, and the GLCB Quarterly Fall Meeting on September 24. At the quarterly meeting, we will have a speaker sharing information on the new ID cards, including requirements, costs, and where to obtain them. GLCB will also hold its September board meeting on Saturday, September 11, at 11 a.m. The Support Alliance of the Visually Impaired will hold its monthly meeting on September 14. For details, contact Cheryl Lott, Savvy President at 270 The next Telephone Low Vision Support Group meeting, sponsored by the Kentucky Council of Citizens with Low Vision, will be on Wednesday, September 15 at 7.30 p.m. Get more information about KCCLV by calling Shirley Kane, President, at 859-652-0441. Everyone is invited to the next meeting of the Tri-State Library users on Saturday, September 18 at 11 a.m. Find out more by calling Natalie Couch, President of Tri-State, at 217-369-5139. The next KCB Board meeting will be on Monday, September 20 at 8 p.m. The meeting is open and all are welcome to attend. For a complete calendar of KCB events sponsored by the Kentucky Council of the Blind and its chapters, visit our website at www.kentucky-acb.org and follow the events link. Thanks to Rick Bogus for his dedicated help in maintaining the events page. The Library Users of America invites everyone to its next Library Without Walls coming up on Wednesday, September 15 at 8.30 p.m. You are invited to share your favorite fiction and favorite nonfiction book. The dial-in Zoom number is 669-900-6833 and enter the code five two six seven two seven one eight one. 727 181 The passcode, should you need it, two five eight two. The American Council of the Blind elected officers, directors, and members of the Board of Publications at this year's virtual convention. The new ACB First Vice President is Deb Cook Lewis from Washington State. Deb has been heavily involved in ACB radio in the past and she has served as chair of the ACB Board of Publications since 2019. Learn more about Deb Cook Lewis on page 2. Periodically, a new article with healthy eating tips and other information reflecting new and updated research appears on EverydayHealth.com. On page 3, we bring you an article just posted in August about 10 unexpected foods that have been found to work well in a diabetic diet. We welcome your feedback and suggestions for sound prints. For more information or to reach us, call 502-895-4598. Page 2.
1: With me today is Deb Cook Lewis, and some of you will recognize that name because Deb was instrumental in helping us with our virtual Kentucky Council of the Blind Convention last year. She's played a major role in ACB radio for a long time, and she's also been the chair of the ACB Board of Publications for several years. Deb was on Soundprints, uh, oh, some time ago. Um, I think, Deb, while you were still treasurer of the Washington Council of the Blind, mm-hmm. but it's, it's been quite a long time, and we have a lot of new listeners. Yeah. So uh, Deb is the new first vice president of the American Council of the Blind, and she's with us today. I want her to kind of introduce herself to our listeners, and then we'll chat a little bit about where she uh, would like to see ACB go and what she would like to accomplish in her term as First Vice President. So welcome, Deb. We're so glad you're here. Well, thank you so much, Carla. It's great to be back on Prince and I do remember doing this before, and I can't remember what all we talked about totally then, but it's always good to kind of refresh some things, as you say.
0: That's and right.
1: We enjoyed working with the uh, Kentucky Council of the Blind last year on your convention and hope to do it again with you this year. So... Um, lots of fun, all kinds of good things going on. Let's see, I'm retired. I retired from, I live in Washington State. I live right where in the corner, the southeast corner of the state where Washington, Oregon, and Idaho all come together. And uh, nothing big here uh, that anybody would care about. But um, basically, um, I live in on the Washington State side of the river. And um, have been active for many, many years in the Washington Council of the Blind, and I'm also um, active nationally <clears throat> with uh, guide dog users. And I retired in 2018. I went, I came on the ACB Board of Publications. Um, yeah, Board of Publications in 2016 as an elected member. It has uh, three elected members and two appointed members, and and I was appointed to chair in 2019. But I started. Um, working with the BOP in 2016, and um, retired from the state of Washington in 2018, where I had actually worked for uh, about 40 years, both for the Department of Services for the Blind and for the University of Washington. And sometimes simultaneously, uh, sometimes I was half-time with each, and some of the time I was full-time with one or the other of them. And I actually went back and forth over the whole time between them, and a little bit of time with the Department of Social and Health Services as well. So, a lot of time in state government doing a whole lot of different things, a lot of which were technology related. Um, but especially when I was with the university, there was uh, there were some research projects and some other things. And I have a background in VOC rehab as well. So, done lots of different things over the years, and had hoped to wait till I was retired to actually get more sort of politically active in an organization, but uh, that opportunity came a little bit sooner than retirement, so I shoved it all in (laughs) during the last couple years of working. Um, Well, in 2016, weren't you uh, a J.P. Morgan leadership fellow? Yes, I was. So that got you to to the convention. Yeah, and I had been to lots of conventions, but I hadn't been in a long time because I'd had some personal life things in the way. I cared Mm -hmm. for... um, my housemate who was terminally ill for three years, and so I wasn't going anywhere. And I had a number of other things going on, so I hadn't actually been to a convention in a while, although I used to go to them all, um, but I hadn't been in a while. I had been active at the state level, and so they encouraged me to apply for the J.P. Morgan Chase. I was surprisingly selected for that, and so one of the commitments that I had made when I went to the conference is I need to come away from here With something to do. Now, I didn't expect it to be anything really big, but I need to come away. I need to come away with something to do. If the organization is going to invest in me, then I need to invest in it. And so, I did definitely come with a commitment to find something. So, uh, the actual story as this goes is that we were all sitting in our delegations, and they were going through announcing the um, nominations from that had been worked through the nominations committee and the board of publications had some gaps and i was sitting next to denise Colley, who at that time was chair of the board of publications but was going to be running for the board and or was running for the board had announced mm-hmm. that she was doing this she was leaving the bop which was going to even make this tougher for the bop I commented just kind of casually to Denise. I said, that would be very, very interesting. I think I would really enjoy doing that sometimes. She goes, how about now? (laughs) Sounds like Denise. (laughs) I said, "Uh, well, I wasn't planning on that. I've got two more years to go till I retire. And she said, well, yeah, but, you know, it's not that hard. I mean, you can sort of choose how much you take on, which is always (laughs) true. So I said, well, I'll think about that. And so then about a half hour, and we were breaking up for this. She said, have you thought about that? <laughs> so I said, well, you know, she goes, let's go talk to Ron Brooks. He's probably going to become the chair. Let's go talk to him. So she did not come and say I was thinking about it. She said, Deb's going to be running for the BOP. <laughs> well, great, he said. <laughs> so that's basically kind of how it happened. And so I was on a little bit of a daze. That was kind of how the adventure began. And I really did enjoy it And when Ron finished his term and they were deciding what to do about the fact that he had been the chair. He had done such an excellent job. It was pretty natural for me to take it on, and so I, I did that. That That's kind of how that all came about. But, yes, I did commit to doing something to help the organization when I came. And they found so, something for me to y- do. Y- you were a good – follow up for Ron because Ron's the way Ron ran the BOP was to begin getting it really organized yes. into yes. into work into tasks uh-huh. and and things that needed to be done and needed to be addressed every every time uh-huh. at each meeting and and putting in right. the time yes. frames for things needed to be done. Right. And, and and yeah, and so then you came along and had that same kind of view, and I mean, that's that's yeah. been very obvious since then, and all the work with ACB Radio and the huge mm-hmm. amount of work with the ACB convention and lining mm-hmm. things up. I mean, it's just organization task after organizational task, right, you know. Right, and so, that is kind of my strong yeah. suit. Um, it is. But I mean, he did really make it, it so much easier for the BOP because we weren't there. You uh, retired in 2018. Have you always lived in Washington State? Um, yes, I've lived all over the state. I've lived and worked in various parts of the state. Um, I wasn't actually born here, but I don't remember living elsewhere. My father was in the Navy and my parents were stationed in Massachusetts when I was (laughs) born. But very soon after I came, my father's um, enlisted time was completed and his big goal was to get back out here where he was from. So that's what they did and drove across country and, and they were here. So my other sisters were all born in Washington state, but, um, um, I've lived all over the state, and, Um, it's kind of a varied state in terms of climate and geography, and so it's not all the same everywhere. Um, and I've lived and worked in various parts of the state. Um, being kind of willing to be an adventurer, I opened a state office in, in a couple of different places where they wanted to do something um, and that kind of thing. So I've moved around, but I've always been here, yeah. Mm-hmm. Do, do you have... Um, other than all of the things that you're doing with the organizations and and with work. Do you have other hobbies? I do have other things. It's true the organization does take up a lot of my time. As Carla mentioned, Mm -hmm. I've been working the last couple of years on the convention because of the virtual nature of it. Um, And um, before that, I actually did work on Conventions very much behind the stage, uh, doing all those recordings that we do in the rooms so that we could, you know, podcast some of the affiliate meetings and programs later. And so I actually um, have been doing some of those things for a very long time, but it just changed its shape. And then I've been very involved with ACB radio in general, and I've been involved with the other things that I do for the organization. So that does take up a lot of my time, but I actually have some other things I do in the world. Uh, I'm actually um, chair of the Washington State Human Rights Commission, which is um, a governor appointed position. It's really the highest civil rights position in the state of Washington. Um, And the commission uh, oversees the, the director. Um, and oversees the processes of the commission. We don't manage it on a day-to-day basis, but we do oversee that. And um, so that doesn't take up as much time as ACB does, but every once in a while it does. I have some activities with my church, and it's kind of a divided thing. I um, um, I have a church here, but I also still have a lot of connection to the church where I attended when we lived in Seattle, um, which is where I retired. And so, um, especially with all the COVID things, that church has done a lot online, so I've still maintained those connections with them uh, pretty nicely. So I have those activities as well. Um, and then my husband and I own a small internet radio station uh, that we manage together. He really does most of the work um, for the management thereof, but I do some, and so we it's um it broadcasts twenty four seven and we have some live shows, some of which are carried on A C B radio and some of which are not, but we um do manage all of that and it requires quite a bit of upkeep to make that all go. So we have that kind of as a hobby. So in general, um I'm I'm pretty busy most of the time. I don't lack for anything to do. <laughs> in fact, if anything <laughs> I kinda go, Oh you know, can we get rid of one of the toy bees? Um but, you know, I, I've always really believed, I, I kind of got from my mom that that if you want something done, you should give it to a busy person because they're probably, um, you know, unless they're just in chaos, they're probably more organized about that. And that's what I really try to do is to use my time well um, to to make it count for something. It doesn't mean that relaxing can't be part of that, but it's like not just, you know, postponing everything or I very much depend on my calendar. It, you know, it goes on my calendar so I can see how much I can manage at a time. And Mm -hmm. so, um, so I do actually, my husband thinks that it's a little crazy because he's like, you're supposed to be retired. And I'm like, Oh, I couldn't do this and work too. (laughs) I had to retire because I didn't have time to work anymore, but at the same time you have so much to do. And then, you know, it always took up all my vacations. Well, now if I really want to do something about a vacation, I can still probably do both. So, I I really love being retired. I think it's great, and um, wish I had figured out to do it sooner. I was super fortunate. My office at the university where I worked the last several years that I was employed, we did a lot virtually. There was mm-hmm. no pandemic. There was no nothing going on to make us. Oh. But we Mm -hmm. actually had a lot of worldwide relationships. Uh, One of our projects was based in India, and um, we also had some people who were doing some stuff in South Africa, and then we had some people doing some stuff in other parts of this country. Mm -hmm. Um, And we had people like me who just kind of wanted to work virtually. Um, So we just had a lot of different things going on. So we had. Uh, I came to ACB with a lot of experience in um, online activities. So I, I knew uh, Zoom inside and out before we started the um, uh, before we started our pandemic things in ACB. Um, I knew some of the other technologies that we actually have not been using, some of which we could use for some things perhaps but are not, but I knew many of them as well um, because of of my employer. And so when we began to start talking um, in the spring of 2020 about how we would um, try to shape things differently in ACB, it was a little easier for me probably than for a lot of people to envision what that might look like. But initially, I know, as we were having those meetings, they would say, "Well, what are we going to do about this?" And I'd say, "Well, um, you might do this." I mean, it was just usually based on something that I had experienced or observed, you know, from my coworkers. And we had massive meetings; we had meetings of eight or nine hundred people sometimes that were not totally uncommon. And kind of understanding sort of how some of those things might work, I think, was helpful to us. And then as more people caught on to how that all worked and um, and we began to build skill, you know, I didn't have to carry that. But I think a little bit the first year, I probably did carry a little more of it just because it was hard for people to picture, and how will we do that, you know? Mm-hmm. And sometimes I was sort of guessing because you can guess based on things, or sometimes you just have to. You just... People aren't at a place where you can just say, I have no idea. So you try to have one, but you try to have it based on what you've observed and seen. And I called my office a number of times. I said, hey, you guys, if you were going to do this, what would you do? You know, because I I didn't know. I think those things were all, um, I tend to be a big picture person. I actually get a little bored with all the details. Sometimes that's a problem. Um, But I tend to be a sort of a big picture person, so I try to picture what the end result needs to look like, and then go back from there. So here's Mm -hmm. what it looks like when they're all sitting in the stands at the game, but now how do we get the players on the field, you know? So then you go Mm -hmm. back to that, because it's lovely to have that picture of everybody in the stands cheering, but... But if there's nobody playing the game, you know, then what would right. you do, right? right. So you right. have to then work back from the end to uh, see how that goes. And and uh, you have to be willing to take some risks. You have to be willing to be wrong sometimes. Like, holy mackerel, we should never have gone over there. But I think as an organization, we've learned a lot about this. That kind of brings me to another area, and that is, okay, so – we couldn't have elections last year, so mm-hmm. we had a ton of offices to elect this oh, year. Oh goodness, yes! I know. We what did we wind up with? Fourteen or 13, something like that. Thirteen, thirteen open positions, right? Mm-hmm. Yes, but then we had the extra one created. Yes, and we on had BLP. one created by 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 someone being appointed by Katie Frederick right. being appointed, to, so that right. created a fourteenth. Yes. Uh-huh. Yeah. So that was the fourteenth position, mm-hmm. and the officers were actually being elected at the mm-hmm. in the correct year
0: 2021
1: right. yes. was the year to elect officers and so uh-huh. here we come up to this and we're getting ready to um, have the candidates pages uh-huh. uh, which the BOP has posted um, uh-huh. each year and they're always there and we can look at that ahead of time and and you'd come out and declare that you're going to run for 1st vice president. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And and you hadn't been on the ACB board before, but you'd done all of this great work with the mm-hmm. BOP mm-hmm. and ACB radio. So it's not as if nobody knew who you were, but tell us um, about what your view is as, as being first vice president, um, a little bit about maybe what, prompted you to run and what your goals are as the first vice president of ACB. You know, that's not just sure. the same as just being a director. It's not yeah. the same. And that was one of the things that um, when I decided, uh, some people asked me to consider running. Mm-hmm. And I said, oh, no, that's that's not what I would like to do. And, and so, you know, I've been here before, right, when people come back. So <laughs> that's why I told my story about Denise. So... So people came back, and this time they sent more people. And they said, so we'd like to know how you're coming on thinking about that. And so I (laughs) I divulged my actual plan because I had a plan. I hadn't had one when, when we went for the BOP thing, but I do have one, right? So I said, I do have a plan. It's not this. So I said, my plan is that I will, assuming that I'm asked to do so, and I have every belief that I will be, I will serve the other two years I am eligible to serve as chair of the BOP. And then following that, David Trot will be no longer able to run as treasurer, and I've been treasurer of everything. So I think treasurer looks like a really safe place for me to go. I know how to do it. You get a lot of staff support for it at the national level, so it's not nearly nice. so hard as it is oh, at yeah. the local level, right? You, you just gotta do, all do it, committees. Yeah. you just gotta. Yeah, you just gotta yeah. show up for everything and pay attention, understand the process, and communicate it. But really, <laughs> staff does the lion's share of the work. That position is probably actually better supported than any position in the organization, as it kind of should be. Aside from all that, I said, "There's my plan, gang," and I'm going to do that ever how many terms I'm. I'm well and enthusiastic. And, and because I'm already 68 years old. So, you know, you got to think about this stuff a little. So I said, I'm going to do that as long as I'm comfortable and well and having fun. And then I'm going to retire because I'll have served on the board and it'll be fun and it'll be over. And then I'll just lay back and be critical of everybody. So that was my plan. And, and the person who was talking to me at that particular point said, I don't think that's going to do us any good. <laughs> I said, well, what do you mean I'm a great treasurer? <laughs> and a lot of that, no, he said, that's not going to do us any good. We actually we actually need you to become president. And I said, well, I'm not running for president. Dan Spoon's running for president. I'm not running against Dan. That's really dumb. I said, right. no, that's not what we mean, he said. <laughs> we need you to put yourself in line so you could become president. Oh, okay. Well, let's see. You don't think treasurer to president is a reasonable option? Yes, but you're not likely to do it that way. (laughs) (laughs) You don't have time to do that. So I thought, oh, you know, now we're going to drag the actuarial table into this, are we? (laughs) um, So I said, okay, well, you know, I'll continue to think about it. Well, you need to think about it hard because we're coming back. So... I I ran through all the people who, um, of course, we had an incumbent and I talked about that and and I ran through all the other people who I thought could run and there were reasons they, no, no, no. So you got to do this. So I thought, all right, they're not going to go away. So I will have a conversation with Dan Spoon because not that Dan wouldn't be politically correct about it. He would never probably tell me, don't run. But, you know, you should be able to read in um, a person's level of support for you.
0: Sure, and, exactly. And you,
1: al- and you also, um, Dan and I have always been very candid with each other, and I would certainly begin this conversation by saying, Dan, I, I need you to actually talk to me. I'm not going to go back to the organization and say, I tried to serve and Dan Spoon said I couldn't. Um, so I said, I'm not going to do you in if you say, holy crow, that's a really bad idea. Um, so I said, um, here's, here's all the thinking, here's what people are talking to me about, here's, here's my view of this and, and my plan and everything, and so I said, so what do you think? And he said, well, I only have one question for you. And I said, what, well, what's that? I mean, I'm pretty ready for some big question. He goes, are you willing to be president after you've been first vice president? Mm-hmm. and i said you know that's a really important question because um um the answer needs to be yes because that not that you have to do it that way but that's the most logical way to get your next president is from your first or second vice president and so um And in many organizations, it's from the first vice president. But I do know organizations Mm -hmm. where you serve in those positions, and there isn't that expectation. Yeah, Um, and that's not how Dan got there either. And it's not how Dan got there exactly either. Right. It it, it typically has not been the way in ACB, but uh, it it certainly is the way to prepare for a logical succession. Right, and so Dan's interested in, in doing that. So his question was, he said, that doesn't mean you you will be, but the question is, are you willing to be? Because he mm-hmm. said, if you're not willing to be, I don't think you should run. And if you are willing to be, then I absolutely want you to run. But he said, I want you to decide based on all the factors you've put up, but, but I want you to add that one in. I said, Okay. I will go off and think about that. And so he was very neutral and everything, but, um, I went, my sources of course came back and they well, did you talk to Dan? <laughs> yes, I did. I talked to Dan. What did Dan say? So I told him what Dan said. Well, he's right. You know, okay, fine. Yeah. So we kind of went almost up to the last minute and then, and then I finally decided, okay, you know, nothing ventured, nothing gained. Um, <laughs> I I do feel strongly about this. I can get there from anywhere. I don't have to get there at all. It doesn't matter to me, I'm okay. It's not like my life goal. But if I am going to at some point serve the organization in that way, I'd really like to be in a position to have had the mentoring from Dan um, over and above um, kind of anyone we've had recently in those roles or anyone we might have in the future that I can think of in those roles. So um, it would be really ideal to me to have that opportunity. I'm not going to run for any of the other positions on the board because the candidates are all stronger and and that's just my personal opinion. Um, People would debate that, I'm not looking for debate on it. That's the place where I believe I could or potentially leverage the, the connections and support that I do have and and yes I'm coming from not having been on the board but you know you got to come somewhere and there's nothing that's ever said you have to work your way up through the whole board to get there see oh that's the other piece that's important. I would have been happy to run for a board seat but I cannot because um, Jeff Bishop is there. So I Yes, can't and the for- ACB's constitution right. um, prevents that from happening since right. Jeff is from Washington now instead of right. Arizona. Right, exactly. Sorry. So, so that I, that's a very important piece because uh, the the really logical thing to have done would have been to run for the board and then even maybe soon run for an office, but run for the board because right now we've got these one year places on the board potentially that'd be a pretty slick you know or yeah. three-year things that'd You're be right. a pretty slick move so i would have been very willing and very happy so i i don't want anyone to think that i sort of presumptuously said well i better start as near the top as i can there is the actuarial table and i do need to remember that my time is you know running out but but aside from that i would have absolutely started on the board but i could not so, when it boiled down, if I was going to run this year, I had to pick an officer to run against. I decided that this was the best place for me to, to, take that, um, to take that shot. And if I lost, you know, I absolutely was going to still be welcome to serve on the Board of Publications and I would do so and all of that and, and, and have no frustration with it and try again later. But you know, it was like, no, we'll try it now. And I am a big risk taker. So that's how it happened. So what are some of the things that you would like to see happen in the next couple of years in ACB? Um, I, I mean, it would be very hard to say, well, uh, I've, got, I've got these you mm-hmm. know, five things I'd like to right. see happen. But but just yeah, because just sort of really the membership ultimately decides kind of what happens, right. and right. so. Um, but I think the thing that we are um, looking at is um, managing a lot of change, um, and you know, there's there's this whole thing of um, um, the voting that just changed. Um, there are other things that are likely to change. Certainly the way we do conventions is going to change. We um, are right now looking at, and, and there are people who are way ahead of us on this, so this is comforting to know. Um, we're looking at a lot of data on the having of, um, of hybrid conventions, that is a virtual component and an in-person component. Um, there are many organizations um, <clears throat> both somewhat similarly situated to us and very different, but that are doing this. And so there's a lot of data out there. And I'm a big data person. So, um, so we're looking at um, a lot of this to try to form, you know, what would be the best experiment for us. Um, we have hotel obligations through 2025. So we know that our convention's in-person component is going to look something like it does today for a while. Um, but it may not forever, you know, but but it will for a while because we have some hotel obligations, which we might be able to adjust some, but we won't adjust totally. So, so there's some element of sameness that's gonna be there for quite some time. Um, but there's some other things that may be changing. The dynamic of who our organization is, is changing. Um, This year, we had a huge jump uh, in attendance of people under the age of 45 at our virtual convention. Way huge jump. Um, And so that dynamic and that element of who we are is changing um, incredibly much. how our organization operates in general has changed so much. Um, you mentioned the open board meetings um, and other kinds of things that are, you know, so much more open uh, to to everyone to either participate in or at least listen to. Um, so that changes uh, that changes the dynamic of what people know and how people operate together and what people do. It makes the world smaller and makes it less elite, frankly. Um, and, um, and and I, I welcome that personally. I mean, I have no problem with it, um, but, um, but it also poses sometimes some challenges. So I think there's a lot of different dynamic that's happening, and I think the overarching goal is to um, manage that activity in a way that moves us forward and helps us to, um to to strengthen and to be um to be a, a, a good steward of our resources and a good player in the environment and um and meeting the needs of our members. Um you know um thinking think trying to think more outside of the box in terms of so if we have these new tools or newer tools or better tools that we're able to engage with, how do we do that in a way that works? how do we how do we look at our affiliate structure? Um, you know we have state affiliates uh, that are based on geography and we have um, special interest affiliates which are based on some commonality, some component of of interest or lifestyle or hobby or something you know employment sometimes uh, but different different issues that people have identified as a common thread. Um, As we become sort of more virtual and more fluid, um, is it possible that the um, geographic component will change sort of its role? I don't know that it will. I'm not insisting that it do or asking it to, but will it or do we need to help it do that? There's nothing like the geographic role for um, in-person relationship and there's nothing like the geographic role for work in the local legislatures, but you know what, what other dynamics are there for that, that geographic role that might change or might be different or might be emphasized different? How do we also get our... We have an, a big increase in members at large uh, due to a variety of things, due to the virtual convention for one thing, due to the community calls, activities, due to some other things that have happened in the organization. Uh, some of which I'm not even entirely sure of, but those two components we know we can trace back to growth in membership at large. So how do we um, how do we deal with that? Um, that is not a bad thing, but do we do we try to um, help that larger membership at large assimilate into the existing um, affiliates we have, or are there some gaps that need to be filled? in that way, or is membership at large just completely viable and, and it's not an issue or a concern or problem? Um, you know, Those are things we don't really have the answers to yet, um, but they are things I think we should kind of think about and, and they will impact our, um, our infrastructure and our structure and our way of thinking and relating over time if it continues, so we need to think about uh, what, what are those impacts and how do we play them well uh for the organization what what will it look like you know in in time um the organization has some revenue goals and some growth goals and some other goals that have been established um you know how are, are those uh right over time are those trajectories things that we will be able to meet are we meeting them at any cost that we haven't quite considered you know we're getting there but maybe Maybe at a cost that we hadn't foreseen. So those are all things you think about, I think, in a sort of a strategic management um, way. Um, And then, of course, we're guided by what does the organization pass as resolutions? Um, what, What do we, who comes into leadership? Um, you know, because we, we keep having, I mean, we'll continue now to resume elections. <laughs> we, had a yes. little, we had to take a little vacation on that one, but we're not anymore. So um, we'll be having those task forces and they'll be figuring out recommendations and we'll continue electing people. And it's always a challenge when your leadership keeps changing, you know, which this organization does allow for, Um and so, there's a lot of things out there to think about. There really are. Mm-hmm. Yes, there certainly are. And yeah. uh, you you list them and and sum them up pretty clearly. And mm-hmm. uh, these are a lot of a lot of major things that will be discussed mm-hmm. in both the the large picture and the and mm-hmm. the smaller uh, steps that take to get to uh, through mm-hmm. all of this.
0: Well, mm-hmm. so mm-hmm.
1: that. We've um, we've really enjoyed having you on on Semprince and chatting about all of this. And I know that there's going to be opportunities in the future for us to discuss uh, some of these issues as they come forward. So thank you, and uh, hopefully we'll be um, we'll be working with you on the KCB convention. I'm looking forward to it. I'm really looking forward to that. Yeah, sounds good. Thank you so much and um, congratulations. Thank you so much.
0: Page three. Now we have an article from everydayhealth.com. It is entitled, 10 Surprising Foods That Have Little Impact on Blood Sugar. From yogurt and fruit to breakfast cereal and sweet potatoes these foods are worth a spot on your diabetes-friendly grocery list. This is by Aaron Polinski-Wade, RD, CDCES, and Moira Lawler, L-A-W-L-E-R. Medically Reviewed by Lynn Grieger, RDN, C.D.C.E.C. This was posted on August 19, 2021. A small bowl of plain, low, or non-fat yogurt with berries is a snack for people with type 2 diabetes. When you're diagnosed with diabetes, one of the first changes that your doctor will recommend is cleaning up your diet. Suddenly, even seemingly healthy foods are placed on a do-not-eat list. While you may start to feel like there are very few foods that you can eat safely, you'll be happy to hear that a handful of foods commonly assumed to be off-limits are actually healthy choices for those living with the condition. These off-limit foods actually have a much lower impact on glucose levels than people think and get the green light to include in a diabetes-friendly diet. The ten on this list all have a low or medium glycemic load, GL, which is a measurement that factors in a food's glycemic index and carbohydrate per serving to show how the food affects blood sugar, according to Oregon State University. Foods low on the scale break down more slowly in the body, which may produce fewer fluctuations in blood glucose and insulin levels. A GL of 10 or under is considered low, while 11 to 19 is medium, and 20 and above is high. While no two people with diabetes will respond to a certain food the same way, here are 10 foods you may be surprised to learn may have little impact on blood sugar. 1. Carrots Carrots are a non-starchy food that are good in a diabetes diet. If you've been under the impression that carrots are a sugar-loaded danger food, you're not alone. Although this is a common misconception, it is simply not true, says Renee Ficek, F I C E K, R D, R.D., owner and president of Seattle Sutton's Healthy Eating in Ottawa, Illinois. Boiled carrots have a GL of 2, according to the University of Sydney. Quote, Carrots are considered a non-starchy vegetable, along with options such as broccoli and lettuce. Feichik says, These foods are safe for people with diabetes to eat at each meal without worry that glucose levels will spike. End of quote. 2. Sweet potatoes are extra-glycemic friendly when eaten with the skin on. If you think living with diabetes means never enjoying a potato without a side of guilt, think again. Foods high in fiber, including sweet potatoes, can support healthy blood sugar levels. One small spud offers about 2 grams of fiber, the U.S. Department of Agriculture, USDA, notes. Quote, Fiber slows things down, so it will slow digestion and slow absorption, and slow any rise in blood sugar, says Lauren Harris Pinkus, RDN, founder and owner of Nutrition Starring You in Somerset County, New Jersey. Foods that are higher in fiber have a lower glycemic response, end of quote. Sprinkle cinnamon on top to enhance the flavor without cranking up the carb count. Boiled sweet potatoes have a medium GL of 11, according to the University of Sydney. 3. Brand breakfast cereal is less likely to spike blood sugar than a low-fiber variety. Quote, People hear cereal and they think carbs, 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 Harris Pincus says, but that's not necessarily the case. You just have to be smart about which type of breakfast cereal you choose. A low-fiber cereal, like Rice Krispies, is going to be digested more quickly than a bran cereal that's very high in fiber, Harris Pincus says, and that's going to raise your blood sugar more quickly compared to a high-fiber bran cereal that's not sweetened, like Fiber 1, she says. All bran breakfast cereal has a GL of 9. According to previous research, published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. It is also an excellent source of fiber, with 10 grams per one-half cup, according to Kellogg's. Harris Pincus says it's tough to say which milk is best to pour over your cereal, as it depends somewhat on the individual. But she says 1% milk is generally a good idea. Quote, it's a low-fat milk, but it has that protein, To balance out the fact that there isn't a lot of protein in the cereal. Dairy free? Go for soy milk. It also contains protein, Harris Pincus says. 4. Cottage cheese offers protein at a low carbohydrate cost. Many people assume that all dairy products contain equal amounts of carbohydrate and affect blood sugar in similar ways but cottage cheese actually contains fewer carbs than yogurt or milk. Quote, low-fat cottage cheese is high in protein and low in carbohydrates, making it a terrific addition to a snack or a meal, says Jill Weisenberger, RDN, CDCEC, author of Prediabetes, A Complete Guide. Jill is based in Newport News, Virginia. Cottage cheese has a GL of 0.6. Be sure to select a variety with no carb-containing additives, which are added to certain brands and can lead to a spike in blood sugar levels. Quote, you don't need extra carbohydrates in such a wholesome food, Weisenberger says. Be a label sleuth and choose a variety with only pure, simple ingredients and no added carbohydrates, end of quote. Five, barley is a versatile grain that provides blood sugar-friendly fiber. Because barley is a grain, it might ring alarms in your head, and it does contain carbs, but it also contains soluble fiber. And that's why it doesn't have a big effect on blood sugar, Harris Pincus says. Per one-half cup cooked pearled barley, has about 3 grams of fiber, notes the RSDA. Barley tends to be good for diabetes and lowering blood sugar because even though it's a carbohydrate, it tends to form this gel that can help with carbohydrate absorption and decrease the rise in blood sugar, she says. Barley has a GL of 9, according to the University of Sydney, As for how to incorporate it into your meals, quote, everyone thinks of soup, but you can make it like any other grain and eat it like oatmeal with nuts, fruit, or a hard-boiled egg, Harris Pincus says. Six, red lentils can star in a diabetes-friendly, plant-based meal. Boiled red lentils have a GL of four, according to the University of Sydney. And like barley, lentils keep your blood sugar response in check because of fiber. A one-fourth cup serving of red lentils contains five grams of fiber, according to the USDA, and this makes them a good source of the nutrient. She suggests using lentils as a base for meatless sloppy joes, tacos, falafel, and meatballs. They are also an option for a plant-based soup. Quote, there are so many things you can do with lentils, Harris Pincus says. It replaces meat, basically. Try lentils for your next meatless Monday. Seven. With a surprisingly low glycemic load, strawberries are a good source for diabetics. Strawberries are often thought to have more sugar than other fruits, but in reality, Strawberries have the lowest amount of sugar per one cup serving when compared to popular fruits such as apples and oranges, with about 7 grams per serving, according to the USDA. Strawberries have a GL of 1, according to the University of Sydney. Quote, Strawberries can be the perfect low-calorie solution for someone with a sweet tooth, says Mitzi Dulan. D-U-L-A-N, R.D., Kansas City-based author of The Pinterest Diet, How to Pin Your Way Thin. Quote, research suggests that eating strawberries may help our bodies better use insulin, which can lower the amount needed to manage blood sugar after eating. End of quote. Preliminary research published in May of 2020 in Food and Function, suggests that berries, including strawberries, may improve insulin sensitivity and help prevent diabetes and its complications. 8. Raspberries are an excellent source of fiber and diabetes friendly. Like strawberries, the sweetness in these berries might make you think there's no way they're part of a diabetes-friendly diet. But hear us out. They have 8 grams of fiber per cup, according to the USDA. That is really high, Harris Pincus says. That's essentially one-third of your daily value of fiber for women in one serving. End of quote. Indeed, raspberries are an excellent source of fiber. The Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics says women should aim to take in 25 grams of fiber per day. Raspberries also have a GL of 2, according to the University of Wisconsin-Madison School of Medicine and Public Health. If you like to snack on berries on their own, that's great, but Harris Pincus prefers to pair them with foods that offer protein and fat. To balance out the fruit's carbohydrate content, Quote, have them with cottage cheese and nuts, yogurt and whole grain cereal like a parfait, on top of your smoothie bowl, or with a little piece of cheese for a snack. She suggests nine, yogurt balances healthy carbs and protein, making it a great snack for blood sugar. Yogurt has gotten a bad rap as a source of hidden sugar. While some flavored varieties have sky-high sugar counts, plain yogurt can be a smart choice for those monitoring their blood glucose levels and has a glycemic load of 3, according to previous research published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Quote, yogurt naturally contains both high-quality carbohydrates and protein making it an excellent food for slowing and preventing an unhealthy rise in blood sugar, feitchik says. In fact, research has shown diets high in certain calcium-rich foods may even help to reduce the risk of developing type 2 diabetes. End of quote. A study published in Nutrients in January 2019 found a higher yogurt intake was associated with a lower risk of type 2 diabetes, though the researchers said more studies are needed because other calcium-rich foods, such as milk, didn't show the same effect. When selecting yogurt, watch for added sugars. The best choice is plain, nonfat yogurt, according to the American Diabetes Association. 10. In moderation, Peanuts are a go-to crunchy snack for diabetes. Peanuts aren't usually thought of as the healthiest snack, but they don't contribute to blood sugar spikes, as you might think. That's because peanuts contain very few carbs, with 7 grams in a 1 cup serving, and have a GL of 1, according to previous research published in the American Journal of Clinical Nutrition. Peanuts have a much higher fat ratio than carbohydrates, and they take longer to digest. Harris Pincus says, According to the USDA, one ounce of roasted or salted peanuts contains 15 grams of fat. You can snack on peanuts by themselves, quote, because they have a very low glycemic load and have their own package of protein, carb, and fat. Harris Pincus says, It's easy to go overboard when snacking on peanuts, but because of the fat content, stick to the one-third cup serving size. If you have questions about the Kentucky Council of the Blind or you need information on resources for people with vision loss, call us at 502-895-4598 or email us at kcb at kentucky-acb.org. and by the American Printing House for the Blind. This is Carla Reschival for Sound Prints. Have a great week, everybody.